Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. And it is good to be back with you today. If you remember back in March, I'm sure you all remember, I spoke on Psalm 121. Do you remember, right? Um, I don't. Today I will begin in Psalm 131, our reading from earlier in the service, and we will find our way into Matthew, um, our New Testament reading. Psalm 121 last time was, if you remember, lifting up our eyes to the Lord. It's one of these songs of ascent that the... Uh, those journeying to Jerusalem for the feast would traditionally have sung. Psalm 131 is also a, a song of ascent, uh, a song of David. Um, and I'd like to read through it again. It's very short, only the three verses. And then I think this psalm uh, has given me a lot to think about, and I wanted to share some of that with you. So let me read again Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. The psalmist David begins by talking about his heart not being haughty or proud, his eyes not lofty, not concerning himself with the wonderful, great things that are too high for him. Just to see both the similarity and difference to our previous psalm, um, Psalm 121, we should lift our eyes up to God, remembering that he exists, remembering that he is there. But we should not pretend to lift ourselves up to his level of understanding. There are things too wonderful for us to understand, above and beyond our level of knowledge, above and beyond what has been revealed to us by him. And this is what David focuses on. I don't concern myself with those things that are too high up, the things too wonderful. Another Old Testament character who recognized the same thing is Job, if you remember. He said at one point, um, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So by the end of the book of Job, and we'll come back and talk more about Job. That's why I'm not going into detail. Job recognized there are things that I was saying in the book, that I was thinking in the book, that are simply too high, too wonderful for me to understand. So the psalmist David is first pointing out, I'm not lifting my eyes up to make myself lofty. I'm not being haughty or proud. I'm recognizing that there are things too wonderful to me. for me. If you want to, you can turn the page over, uh, at least I'm turning the page in my Bible, to Psalm 139. And I just wanted to point this out. The same idea is taking place here. The, the opening parts of Psalm 139, um, again, David talking about to God how the Lord knows him intimately. 
For instance, Psalm 139.1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. And he goes on for a number of verses talking about how well God knows him. God knows us completely, wholly, and intimately, every thought. However, verse 6, such knowledge... David says, is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God knows us perfectly, but we know him imperfectly. We don't know him completely or wholly as he knows us. And that's part of what we have to wrestle with and and recognize. Because as Christians even, even maybe especially We want answers. We want to know what's going to happen tomorrow. Remember what we just read that Jesus says, tomorrow will worry about itself, and we'll come back to that. We want to know what God is doing. We want to know why God did this. We want to know why God allowed that. We have lots of questions, a lot of things that we want answers to, but part of our struggle, or what we have to struggle with as Christians, is recognizing We may not have that level of knowledge. David reminding us that some of those things, some of those answers are above us, too wonderful for us. So what does he do? In verse 2, again, back over in Psalm 131, he says, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. And, And many of the commentators suggest... Maybe the picture we're to have is not necessarily the, the, the specifically weaned child, but the child, the, the baby who has just finished nursing, being held in its mother's arms completely content. Like a weaned child is my soul within me, with its, a weaned child with his mother. That picture of pure contentment and satisfaction. So this raises the question, in my mind at least, and so I'm going to raise it for you, uh, you know, what can we learn from a child? Jesus singled out the child and said to his disciples, I'll just read a couple verses from Matthew 18, calling a child to himself. He put this child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So I'm drawing these teachings together. What David is saying about this contented child, that is what his soul is like. And Jesus teaching his disciples, becoming like a child. And my question that I'm addressing or raising for us is, In what ways should we be like a child? Because it's not a simple, complete analogy. We are not to be like children in every way, but in what way are we to be like a child? And so we'll talk about a sometimes a childlike faith, which I think is exactly what Jesus is after or what he's expressing. And what he singles out in the verses I just read from Matthew 18 was whoever humbles himself like a child. So the faith of a child, the humbleness of a child, that's what I want to emphasize and then, and then contrast that with in, in what ways we shouldn't be like children as Christians, right? So 
the small child, the toddler, the infant, what do we, what do we see? They are completely, completely dependent on their parents. They need their parents. You know, an infant can do, other than breathing, eating, etc., can't do anything on its own and can't even provide that for himself. The infant completely dependent on their parent. The, the child even completely, the, the small child completely looking to their parents for everything. Um, this is very apparent to, to my family. Um, whenever we get a chance, uh, especially this summer, a couple times, visiting um, Jody's brother, Jonathan, so Fran and Harry's son. Um, Jonathan is a teacher, so he's at home for the summer taking care of his two kids, five-year-old Harrison and one-and-a-half-year-old, not quite, Bridget. So we'll go and visit them, and Bridget, a little over a year old, my kids will try to help her with something. My wife, Aunt Jody, is here. She's going to do this for you, do that for you. Bridget will have none of it. The only one who can satisfy her, meet her needs and her demands, are her, is her father, right? So everything that she needs, wants in her life, at that moment, because her father is there, he's the one that can do it. And if he sneaks out of the room, it's okay for a little while until she realizes that he's gone, and then she'll let him know that she wants him. I'm sure that when her mother or her grandmothers are there, they will provide for her, but we could not, right? She knows that her father, in that case, will satisfy and meet all of her needs. It's that complete dependence and complete confidence, right? She has, at this moment, complete confidence in her father, right? Now, my children, a little bit older, right? 12 and 14. At some point in their growing up process, they, they've come to realize that, you know, we are not, their mother and father are not omnipotent or omniscient. We cannot do everything for them. So they come to that realization that we are imperfect, but the, the child, the toddler, has that complete trust, that complete dependence, complete confidence that mom and dad can meet every one of our needs. The, the humility that comes with recognizing, I can't do it on my own. Right? The humility, the dependence, the trust, and the confidence. I'm suggesting that those are the things that when we look at a child, and its relationship to their parents, you know, those are the things that we should be looking to and saying, I think that's what David is pointing us to. I think that's what Jesus is pointing to that we can learn from children. Because on the other hand, we need to recognize that the Bible doesn't say just be like children. Blanket statement, because there are ways that we are not to be like children. All right? And sometimes a childlike faith may be in some of our minds and some of the ways that it's been expressed or taught, maybe a little distorted, and I want to make sure um, that we see what, where we shouldn't be like children. So for instance, um, 1 Corinthians 3, I'll just read a couple of verses there, because Paul, the author of Hebrews later on, does the, the same analogy. There is this contrast between being a child and being an adult, being immature and mature in our faith in our understanding, in our behavior. 
So again, questioning how should we be like a child? There are some ways that I just outlined we should really be like a child and look to a child as an example of those things. But in other ways, 1 Corinthians 3.1. Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Is it okay to be an infant in Christ? Their answer is yes, when you are a new Christian. But Paul is saying that should no longer be the case for you Corinthians. Let me continue. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So the problem with the Corinthians is, as new Christians, they're going to behave like new Christians. But Paul's expectation is, now that some years have passed, and to be clear, it's only been a few years since they received the gospel, he's expecting that they would have matured and grown up in their faith so that the jealousy and strife, their childlike behavior, would have been left behind. But he hears the reports from Corinth that there's jealousy, there's strife, there's infighting within the church, and he diagnoses it from afar, saying, you're still infants in Christ. You need to grow up in the faith. Coming to a greater maturity in Christ, I'm going to suggest, should lead us to a deeper childlike faith. As, and so this is where the analogy, if, if you're following, might break down. Because what do I want for my children, all right? As they are, you know, as they were infants and toddlers, completely dependent, right? Completely dependent on me and their mother to provide everything. As they're growing up now, what do I want for them? I want them to become more and more independent, right? I want them to be able to do things for themselves. I want them whenever they're reaching adulthood to be able to go out into the world and flourish. I don't want them to be dependent on us like they were when they were little kids, if you understand. Growing up as a person, human, in relationship to your parents, you're becoming more and more independent from your parents. But that's not the way it should work in our relationship with God. So as we're growing up in our faith, we should actually become more and more childlike in our dependence, in our confidence, and in our trust. The childlike faith for me is clearly not a blind faith. Childlike faith is one that asks questions. What do children do? Well, my son, Daniel, as soon as he learned how to talk, he began asking questions, all right? And so as soon as he learned how to talk, explain this to me. And he assumed he had the complete confidence that my wife and I, his mother and I, had all the answers, right? So we would ask us one question, and we would give him an answer. And he would think about it for a moment, and he would be able to, based on that new answer, turn it right into a new question, right? And on and on until finally we would have to say, why is this, why is this? Daniel, it's just the way it is. Or, you know, at some point, 
it would be whenever you're older, maybe you'll be able to understand more than that, right? But it's a um, the childlike questioning, wanting to know, expecting answers, and that's something that we as Christians, again, need to wrestle with. But sometimes the answer is, that's just the way it is. Or even he would get us to the point where I would say, I don't know the answer to that. All right, just um, for your instruction, I brought someone else along who asked a lot of questions as a kid. You may know him, Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. All right, so here are a couple of comics that I want to read that he's questioning and his father has the answers. Now, you need to pay attention to the answers to see what you think. All right, so Calvin is in the back seat, mom and dad are in the front, and they're driving and they're coming up to a bridge. And the sign on the bridge says, weight limit 10 tons. All right, so the question is, dad, how do they know the weight limit on the bridges? Dad has the answer. Okay, Calvin, they drive bigger and bigger trucks over the bridge until it breaks. Then they weigh the last truck and they rebuild the bridge. Makes perfect sense. So in the back seat, there's Calvin say, oh, I should have guessed that that's how they did it. And in the front seat, mom is saying to dad, if you don't know the answer, just tell him that you don't know. All right, and this is a little longer one, but again, I, these are a couple that I really like. All right, so Calvin and his dad are sitting there watching the sunset, and at the sunset, the, t- the sky turning this beautiful color of red. And so Calvin asks his dad, Dad, why does the sky turn red as the sun sets? His father says, well, that's all the oxygen and the atmosphere catching fire as the sun sets. All right, well, where does the sun go when it sets, he asks. The sun sets in the west. It actually sets in Arizona right near Flagstaff. That's where it comes down. Calvin says, oh. His father says, don't you know, that's why the rocks in Arizona are so red, because the sun sets there. Calvin, again, processing all this new, very important information. Don't all the people get burned up there? No, no, no. The sun, the father says, goes out as it's set, and that's why it's dark as night, dark at night. But doesn't the sun, he asks, crash and crush the whole state of Arizona when it's land? No, no, his father says. His father takes a quarter. See, look at this quarter. I'm going to hold it up and see it's the same size as the sun. See, the sun isn't really big. It's only the size of a quarter. Calvin, I thought I read somewhere that the sun was really big. Well, the father says, you can't believe everything you read, I'm afraid. (laughs) Then Calvin, okay, so he's, you know, this is, I can see my son processing each one and asking the next. So how does the sun rise in the east if it lands in Arizona each night? At this point, the dad says, oh, it's it's time for bed. You got to go to bed now. He's out of answers. So as mom is tucking Calvin in, Calvin's like, Wow, I hope that someday I'm as smart as dad is. And the mother says, what did he tell you this time? So just that innate curiosity of the child. And I hope that as a father, I didn't too often take the root of Calvin's father and make stuff up. I may have tried that occasionally. But um, the point being, we as children of God have a lot of questions. Sometimes, I'm assuming God is not um, intentionally misleading us like Calvin's father, but sometimes, oh, it's time for bed. 
I can't answer that, maybe the response that we're getting from God. Some of the questions that we might ask him, we simply aren't going to know the answer. And that leads me back, as I said, to the, the book of Job. The book of Job, and if you know the outline of the story, Job loses everything. We know why as readers of the book. There has been this challenge made up in heaven between Satan, or Satan makes it towards God, about removing everything from Job, and the challenge being, if you take everything away, he will curse you. So we, the readers, know that Job is being put through this incredible trial because of this challenge that has been made up in the heavenlies. Job, on the other hand, has no idea why he's suffering. He goes through the entire book responding to his friends who assume that he has been sinning and that's why he's suffering as punishment from God. And Job saying, no, no, I haven't sinned in any big way. And Job calling into question at times God's justice. I could say a lot about the book of Job. One thing I will say is it doesn't seem to be a book about God's justice. Job assumes that everything that's happening to him is a result of justice. Or in his case, maybe injustice, he's saying. At the end of the book, the final chapters, God appears and doesn't give him any answers. And that's one of the most surprising things. And as, as people look at the book of Job, looking at this ending, wait a minute, God doesn't answer any of his questions. God never tells Job why he was suffering. Job is not given any explanation. Instead, Job is given a long list of questions by God. God says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You know how that worked. You were there, right? And again and again, God questions Job about God's creation and nature, and Job has no answers. God's essentially saying, if you think you know a lot, then answer some of these easy questions, and maybe I'll answer a hard question for you. But Job has no answers. Job, um, as I said before, he says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. One way of looking at God's response is God is taking Job, who thought he was up there on God's level, knowing the mind of God, understanding everything that God was doing, and speaking from a place of haughtiness, pride, rather than humility. And what God is doing for Job is putting Job, his child, back in his place. And putting him in his place meant showing Job that he doesn't know as much as he thinks he does. So what do we do? We want to know more? Do we not? Because I've said both of those things. You know, we don't want to think we know all of this, but yet we don't want to just say, "Oh, I don't know," and that's fine. As Christians, we don't want to avoid the knowledge. But the reality is, as we know more and more about God, we actually might understand more fully how limited our knowledge of God is. 
sees a new Christian, we might think, oh, I have all this whole Christian thing. Under, I understand all the ways of God. And I understand. The more we know God and understand his ways, in some ways, more mysterious they are. And we recognize that we're not, like Job, we're not given all the answers that we might want. And yet, what do we have to be? We have to be that contented, dependent, trusting child, even when we're not given all those answers. One area, and this is where our Matthew passage um, takes us, as well as the, the end of Psalm 131, because at the end of Psalm 131, it's actually a call to the listener. It's David saying, oh, Israel, a call to response, right? It's hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. David is sharing his very brief experience. I've humbled my heart. I, I, I've, I've brought my eyes down. I'm not worried about the things that, I, that are outside of my control. And then he calls Israel to hope in the Lord in the same way. One of the things that is clearly outside of our control is what tomorrow will bring, right? And it's one thing that I, I've noticed um, clearly from the book of Ecclesiastes, not knowing the future is one of our great stumbling blocks. It's why we can't make all the plans that we want. It's why even if we have God's wisdom and we have wisdom to make decisions, we don't know what the future holds for us. We can't predict what tomorrow will bring. And so what does Jesus tell, tell us? He, he tells us that we can't worry about some of those things that are outside of our control. What can we do? We can trust in God. We can recognize that God cares about us. And even if we don't know all of his ways or understand the ways that he may meet our needs, we still need to trust in him. So um, not worrying about what we're going to eat because <clears throat> look at the birds of the air, right? They neither sow nor reap, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? What about our clothing? Even the basic needs for life, our food and our clothing, don't worry about those. Jesus says, you know, consider the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin, yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed. <clears throat> Finally, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What will tomorrow bring? The fact is we don't know. We don't know how each day is going to work out. But as we are deepening our childlike faith, if I could say that, if our childlike faith is growing, right? as we have a more mature understanding of our knowledge of God and our limitations, our childlike faith should be growing and deepening. What does that allow us to do? It allows us to trust. It allows us to, to say, I know that tomorrow may include tragedy, suffering, disappointment. We don't have promises that God is going to keep us from those things. We don't have promises that we're going to avoid those things as Christians. What do we have promises that God will see us through? So though we don't know what tomorrow will bring, 
We have God, a father who cares about us and will carry us through. Therefore, there's no place for worry. So whenever we read this very short Psalm 131, for me, it, it brings me back to my childhood, right? Makes me look at children a little bit differently and ask this question, what can I be learning from them? And again, not all of their behaviors, not all of what they do, but that childlike dependence, that childlike faith. What does this remind me? Um, reminds me that I need to show my children that I too am a child of God. They've come to recognize, as I said before, that I am not omnipotent. My daughter sometimes still thinks that I should be. Um, she recently had one of her little electronic gadgets that wasn't charging right. So what does she do? She brings it to me and says, can you fix this? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. She said, come on, Dad. You can fix anything, right? I don't know if she actually believes that at this point or if she was just using that to kind of um, encourage me that I need to try a little harder. Um, it's that idea, you can fix anything. You can do anything. Now, I know that both my children have come to the, the point where they understand that I am fallible, that I am not omnipotent or omniscient, that we don't know as their parents everything and can't help them. But instead, hopefully they're seeing more and more that we, their parents, are dependent on God. Because I, as a child of God, should be growing in dependence in, of him. Um, being more and more confident that he can meet my needs and therefore trusting in him more and being even more dependent on him. So showing them that I am this child of God. As I, as a father, as a teacher, you know, show and allow my children, my students to see that I am not perfect, that I am dependent of God, on God, Hopefully, I am pointing them to a greater dependence on God in their own lives. In the end, this psalm is teaching us. Will we have complete confidence and faith in God? Well, Jesus points out, we have every reason to be faithful and confident. If he takes care of these lesser creatures, the birds and the lilies, of course he's going to take care of us because we are that much more valuable to him. He will provide for our needs. We do not need to worry about tomorrow because we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but he does. He knows already, and he will provide for us even through that. So recognizing, becoming like children, being humble, being dependent, recognizing our own weakness and limitations should only increase our trust and dependence on God, recognizing that he is the one who can provide all these things. That should give us hope for tomorrow. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a great God, a great Father to us who loves us and cares for us. I pray as, as your children that we would become more and more trusting, more and more dependent, and even as we come to know that we don't have all the answers, that we don't have all the knowledge, that you aren't going to answer all of our questions, yet we should increase our faith in you and our dependence because we recognize 
even more fully how much we need you. We praise you for your for your sustenance, for your salvation that you have given to us, and I pray that you would help us to trust and rest in those things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.